This summer, I was off on one of my cross-country road trips with the kids, and I heard a story that I have been waiting to share with you ever since. It's a story from Ali al-Abdulatif, and this is what he says. It's February 1st, 2015, and Ali is on the Green Line on the T in Boston. He's heading home on a Sunday afternoon from brunch with his friends, and he's doing what everybody does on public transportation. He says he's daydreaming and trying really hard not to make eye contact with anybody. And then he notices a screw pop loose from above him and fall down on the seat next to him. So he decides to be a good Samaritan, and he picks up the screw, and he puts it back into the wall. And he goes back to daydreaming, and then he realizes there's a man that is yelling on the tee. And he turns and looks, and the man is yelling at him. The man is yelling, and he's saying, I saw what you did. I saw you plant a bomb on the tee. And Ali's heart drops. Before he can say or do anything, the man who was yelling at him is running to the front of the train. They feel the T come to a stop, and the man comes back with the conductor. Lots of people who've heard the word bomb just start streaming off the train as soon as they can. A few others stick around and say, hey, that's not what happened. There's no bomb. And the conductor takes it all in, and the man who's made the accusation is clearly unsatisfied. So he takes out his phone, and he dials 911. And this, of course, activates a safety protocol that no one can interrupt. The conductor puts his hand on Ali, and he keeps it there. He walks him up to the front of the train, and he drives the train to the next stop, where everybody gets off, except for the conductor, the man who made the accusation, Ali, and a female officer who comes on the train. The officer then takes Ali and the man who accused him outside off of the train and into one of those shelters that stands there on top of the platform, so you're still essentially outside, but there you are. And there they are, shivering out there in the, what is one of the coldest winters on record in Boston. As they're waiting there in that shelter in the outside platform, as you can imagine, there are all kinds of thoughts swirling around in Ali's mind. This has never happened to me before, he thinks. What in the world is going to happen now? Are the police going to search my apartment? I'm here on a student visa. Am I going to be deported? Will I have to leave right away? What about my classes? Ali starts to panic, and he does the only thing he can think of doing. He pulls off his coat, and he throws it on the ground, and he goes over to the officer, and he says, frisk me, anything, check me out, I'm fine, I didn't do this. And the officer says, it's okay, sir, calm down, put your coat back on, it's cold out here. And they stand out there just waiting, waiting for an hour until the officer gets a phone call. The police, it turns out, went to the wrong Harvard tea stop. And it's going to be another couple of hours before they're able to make it to this one. So the officer who's waiting with them takes down Ali's name and phone number and address, and she tells him, just go ahead home. As long as when the police call, you head right down to the station to talk to them. Ali agrees, and the officer invites him to get back on the tee to continue where he's going. But he doesn't feel comfortable with that, so he decides to walk home. And as he walks, he starts to remember. You see, Ali is from Saudi Arabia, and growing up there, he says he never felt like he belonged. It was a very conservative place, and he was a very liberal-minded kid. 
When there were other folks who wanted to talk about conservative ideology or traditional family values, all he wanted to talk about was who was going to win in a fight, Superman or Batman. When it came time to decide where to go to college, he said he knew he needed to get out of Saudi Arabia. He knew he wanted to come to the States. He wanted to find his people, he said, and he did. And it turns out it was the Dungeons and Dragons people, the Halo game playing people, the comic book readers that were here. And it was amazing, he said, that it turns out the people he was looking for all his life were people, as he says, that you people would call nerds. He found them here. Arriving here in the States, Ali immediately felt like he belonged. And it was amazing, he says. But as it started to get close to the time when he was going to graduate from college, he realized that things were about to change. And that's when it was, this time in the winter when he was pulled off the tee. He knew that pretty soon his friends were all going to go their separate ways, and unless he found some way around it, he was going to be going home too, to Saudi Arabia. By then, he says, he'd come to understand how it is with race in America. He'd been pulled aside for more random security checks than he could count. But this was the first time he'd ever experienced that racism so real, so personal. And as he walked, he wondered, if I don't belong here, where am I going to go next? As Ali got back to his apartment, his head was still spinning, he says. What does all this mean? I, he wasn't in a good place, so he decided to get on the phone and call his friend Jackie. She listened to him. She told him that this was messed up, that this never should have happened. It wasn't okay, and she tried to calm him down. And she reminded him, hey, it's February 1st. We've been planning this Super Bowl party together for months. Come on. It's our New England Patriots playing today. Come on over. Come to the party. No, he said, I, no, I'm not that interested in the game. But, but his friend knew that he was just scared about the phone call and about going out. So she insisted, come on, come on over. Come to the party. So when he hung up, he took his phone and he put the ringer on the loudest possible set setting and he put it in his pocket and he started walking. He didn't know if he was even allowed back on the tee or not, so he made the walk 40 minutes out in the cold. And as he got closer to Jackie's place, he could hear the sounds of the loud sports party starting to come from the apartment building. And he braced himself before he went in. When he opened the door, he saw a couple of close friends and then a whole bunch of friends of friends and loose acquaintances. And when he walked through the door, everybody fell silent. Jackie had told them what had happened on the tee. He got a rush of hugs from his friends, and pretty soon then the party went back to normal and everybody was watching the game. Every now and then somebody would come and sit down next to him, whether he knew them or not, and they'd say, man, this is messed up. We know you wouldn't do that. But Ali says he couldn't really hear it. He couldn't take it in. He was too distracted waiting for that phone call. And eventually, the phone call came. The room was loud. It was a close game. And he decided to take his phone out into the hallway to answer. A deep voice on the other end of the line introduced himself as Jim, just Jim. And it turned out that Jim had dialed the wrong number. <laughs> so Ali let Jim know that he had dialed the wrong number, and he hung up. And he took a moment to compose himself. And when he walked back into the party, and when he opened the door, everybody stood up and they were putting their coats on. And he was confused. I said, what, what is going on? Oh, they said, we're coming with you. We're coming down to the station with you. 
And in their minds, he says, in their minds, they were all just going to head down to the police station with him, an army of nerds in Patriot jerseys, <laughs> each one of them ready to proclaim his innocence one by one until the police set him free. Now, Ali didn't end up getting the phone call that night or any other night or ever, it turns out. The incident has left him nervous whenever he goes to the airport, and he still wonders if it's in his records somewhere he can't see. But he says he never wonders if he belongs here anymore. These are my people, he says. This is my city, and I'm not going anywhere anytime soon. Community. Community can do for us what we can never do alone. It took 14 people, Ali said, 14 people to undo the actions of just one person that day. It was community. Community is the exact opposite of the othering that is happening so often in our country today. We hear it and we see it, group after group of people being named as other, as outsider, as responsible somehow for the downfall of America. So many people are being cast outside the circle of what supposedly makes America great. And this othering is the exact opposite of the community that we are called to, cre to create. As Unitarian Universalists, we are a people that says no one is left outside the circle of love, that each and all are whole and holy and worthy, that there is nothing that you can do and nothing that can be done to you that can ever take away the love that is so big from this community, from the holy. This is who we are and this is what we are about. Not long after the presidential election, Cornell West, the Christian socialist, shared these words. He said, in this bleak moment, we must inspire each other, driven by a democratic soul craft of integrity, courage, empathy, and a mature sense of history. Even as it seems, our democracy is slipping away. As one whose great family and people survived and thrived through slavery, Jim Crow and lynching, I know the neo-fascist rhetoric and predictable authoritarian reign is just an, another ugly moment that calls forth the best of who we are and what we can do. For us in these times, he says, to even have hope is too abstract, too detached, too spectatorial. Instead, we must be a hope. We must be participants. We must be a force for good as we face this catastrophe together. It is not enough for us to have hope, West says. We must be a hope. We must be participants. We must be a force for good as we face this together. We must live out who we are called to be, which as Unitarian Universalists is a community that truly holds no one outside the circle of love. And truly being a hope in this world, truly being and becoming who we proclaim we are means that we need to take a look at ourselves from time to time as well. When we pull back the veil on our own Unitarian Universalism, we cannot help but learn about the ways that our churches reinforce white supremacy and push the experiences and needs of people of color and indigenous people to the margins sometimes, outside the center of the circle. 
When we pull back the veil on who we are, we learn about the ways that so many people feel like they have to leave a part of themselves at the door to fully enter this place or other places of hope. And it breaks my heart to know that the community that I trust can save us is also a community that can do us harm. But the truth is we are not exempt from the influences of our culture and our country, and pulling back the veil and holding each other tight is something that we can absolutely do. I think most of us know that community can be a place of salvation and also a place of deep wounding. For anyone who's found themselves cast outside of a community, for anybody who's been made to feel other or outside the circle of belonging, been made to feel broken or not right, you know the sting of it and the way it can bore a hole in your heart. If you've been teased or left out or bullied in the lunchroom or on the playground or in the bus, if you've seen others receive the care or the resources that you have needed and been denied, if you feel more alone in a group where you're supposed to belong than you do when you're actually alone, then you know the pain that some kinds of community can create. And yet, and yet I still believe that community will be the thing that saves us. Let me tell you why. When I was in my early 20s, I experienced this kind of healing community, this place and this way of being that has marked me, that has healed me, and has made me believe in the possibility of this kind of community for all of us. I was in my mid-early 20s, as I was saying, and I found myself in the midst of a tight-knit community of friends. All of us, it turns out, were people who didn't fit in to society or the expectations that our families or communities had for us. We were gay and lesbian, transgender and transsexual. We were bikers and cartoon artists and descendants of famous ministers who had graduated from elite co colleges Feminists who then went on to enter the world of dancing. We were first-generation college graduates, sexual abuse survivors, and new kindergarten teachers. Many of us didn't have families to return home to after college. Some of us had been cut off after we'd come out. Others were in early recovery from alcohol or drug addiction and needed some time away from the people who had installed the buttons that too often sent us over the edge. And many of us in this group, many of us knew ourselves to be different, to be discarded, to be unwanted by the world. We had very little money and no financial safety net, but together, together we were absolutely something else. Together we made dinner out of nothing. We laughed until our faces hurt. We pooled our money to pay rent and to get into the dollar theater down the street. Together we made holidays that felt whole even when we knew, looking around the table, that we wouldn't be welcome anywhere else. Together, we held each other tight and tighter whenever the veil was pulled back, when we were hurt by the world or by our families, when discrimination was legalized again and again, when lives were lost that looked like ours or were ours. We held each other tight and tighter still healing ourselves and one another, knowing that whatever was going on in the world outside of us, we had each other. We had what Starhawk talked about in the reading today. We had eyes that lit up when we entered the room. 
Voices that celebrated with us whenever we came into our own power. Strength that joined with our strength to do the work that needed to be done. There were arms to hold us when we faltered. A circle of healing, a circle of friends. Some place where we could be free. It was community. In these sometimes difficult days, we must develop hope in each other. We must be hope for ourselves and each other, living boldly with arms wide open while holding each other tight. We must take the risk of sharing the truth of our lives and the experiences we face, putting on our coats when we're called to, being an army of nerds in patriot jerseys or whatever else we are called to be in the moment. We must be the holiday table that always has one more seat open the ones who are sharing our dollars and dimes in the pot to ensure that everyone has somewhere to call home. The next enlightened one, Thich Nhat Hanh has said, the next Buddha will be the Sangha, the community leaning toward enlightenment. It's community that the authors and the activists and the historians that they keep on telling us Community, they say, is the antidote to evil, the response to a seemingly unbearable truth, the answer to bridging the divide between our hopes and ideals, our often lofty and historic theology, and the actions that we will take today. Community is where we will find strength, where we will know ourselves whole and holy and worthy, each and every one of us. May we be about the building of that kind of community here and all over the world. May we be that hope for ourselves and for each other. May it be so. Amen.